jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Okay, this morning's class is a very special one because today we are finishing the entire tractate of Avot. We're finishing the sixth chapter and that concludes the entire Nesechet, the entire gathering of these teachings. But have no fear, we're going to start again in Metz <laughs> The truth is that every time you learn something when it comes to Torah, the more you learn it, the better you understand it, the more deeper it is. And those who learn Torah are accustomed to constantly reviewing and constantly learning and always seeing deeper messages. They say that the first hundred times is learning. After that, you start to review. Okay, so we are on page 296. Mishnah number 11, the final Mishnah. Everything that Hashem created in His world was only created for the sake of Hashem's honor. How do we know this? It says in the Pasuk. The scripture says, Everything that is called for my name, for my honor, or for my glory, which the Bartunur interprets as for my praise. I created and formed and made. In other words, so everything that I created, formed and made, was made for the name of Hashem or for the sake of Hashem. For the concept of Hashem's praise. The Eimer, and the verse states further, that Hashem rules forever and ever. So we have to understand both of these verses, what each verse contributes, and what does this really mean when we say that everything that is created is only created for the sake of Hashem. So first let's look at it in a a straightforward manner. One of the great theological conundrums that people of faith have to deal with is the idea that if everything comes from God, how could evil exist? This is a real question. It's a real concern. Evil does exist. In our world we see evil. And if God created everything, you're saying that God creates evil, so God is evil then. And it doesn't make sense. Therefore, some Jewish theologians who went off on their own way and departed from the path of Torah eventually created a religion which they called Christianity and Christianity deals with the problem in a very direct way they divorce evil from God there's, there's good reason for it it's actually a very logical approach it makes sense that God could not have created evil because then he's not God if God is all good and all love then evil and hate and suffering can't come from God so they isolated two kingdoms or two realities kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan reality of divinity and the reality of evil the devil and this way they have this eternal struggle where God wrestles with the devil and in the end the good guys are going to win to be sure this hails from the Roman or previously Greek mythology where the gods are warring with each other good gods, bad gods positive spirits, negative spirits 
and the hope that if you pick the right spirit to worship the right one eventually everything is going to come into the right place Judaism, Torah Judaism rejects this entirely to us the most important verse in the Torah is Shema Yisrael Hashem Aleikeinu Hashem Echad that Hashem is one Hashem is our God and Hashem is one the oneness of God some people misunderstand this idea of the oneness of God. God is, God is the only God, or the only God we believe in. That, that's a, an o- overly uh, simplistic. What does it mean God is the only God? And there isn't other gods? Or we choose only to worship one God instead of worshiping two gods or following one path? Where is the deep content that's contained within this verse that was on the lips of so many Jews who fought and lived and died for Yiddishkeit? And the answer is that the word Echad is as we talked about in previous classes is made up of three concepts Aleph represents one Ches represents seven heavens and earth or what is up and what is down and Dalit represents the four corners so Ches and Dalit together represent a six dimensional reality as we know it we define reality in six dimensional terms that's what we call space just because that's what we call space or that's how we understand space does not mean that that's the only concept of existence or reality. To us, in our limited manner, that's the only concept of reality that we can conceive of. Everything has to take up some kind of space. Everything has to exist within some kind of framework. We're not capable of thinking outside of our own box. Because that's what Hashem created us. And what we have to know is that that which is, seems to be real or is perceived as reality is not outside of God. That the Ches and the Dalad, which are representation of six dimensions, or reality, is all one. So everything is the oneness of God. Everything is created by God. And because God God creates everything, and everything is constantly dependent on God for its existence, there is nothing else that truly can or does exist outside of God. What that means is that we just allowed for a devil, or for evil, or negative things to be within the framework of God also. This is an illogical thing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. That's why we believe it. It's not something that we can understand really. It's impossible for the human mind to fathom. So where was God in Auschwitz? How could God have been there? If God is creating every moment, how is God creating Nazis in gas chambers? How is God allowing, not only allowing, God doesn't get a hiatus, go on vacation and say, okay guys, I hope you behave. I'll be back in a few years. This is not the God of Israel. The God of Israel is always constantly involved. Hashem Elekeinu. Hashem is the, the great God in the loftiest terms that we can imagine or not imagine. Elekeinu. Elekeinu means our God which is interpreted by our sages as Koicheinu V'chayaseinu. Our life. Our, our, our ability to exist. So the God that we relate to is our ability to exist. God that enables us to be that's the same God that is Hashem Echad that enables everything to be. How is it possible that God would put himself in a situation or God would create evil like that? We don't know. It doesn't make sense. It's not a rational thing. And that's why we say a Jew believes in the oneness of God. A Jew doesn't know the oneness of God. Knowing it means we cannot rationalize it, we cannot understand it. This is, I think, what's important to understand before we go into the words of the Mishnah. You have to realize two things. If you look at the Mishnah carefully, it says, Kol Masha Baruch Hu 
everything that Hashem created in His world, Loibroi was not created. Except for the honor of God. It's almost like scratching your left ear with your right hand. Look at it. Everything that Hashem created was not created except for. How about saying that sentence simply? Everything that Hashem created in this world was done for Hashem's glory. Why do we have to say was not created except for? You mean it's not created except for? Just say what it is created for. Judaism emphasizes the positive. We shouldn't talk about what something isn't, but rather what something is. So Chassidus explains that in truth, everything that you perceive as reality, everything that you see as creation, you should know doesn't really exist. Whatever was created, really wasn't created. It really isn't. You think it is, but it really isn't. So why is it then? It is for Hashem's glory. But let me clarify this. Imagine, if you will, that we have virtual reality. Everybody knows what virtual reality is. VR is a big thing today. So we have virtual reality of a movie screen, virtual reality of any type of something which is created to look like or seen as. Right? The screensaver idea. So how real is the screensaver? If, if, if reality is defined by sight, what do you mean it's not real? Sure it's real. What makes it not real? Knowledge. Knowledge of what? Can you see it? Yes or no? Yes. So then it's real. You know, the, ever hear the story of this man is talking about, he said, we have this fantastic maid. He said, really? He says, yeah. And he said, and you know, I have a beautiful home and we have beautiful, beautiful paintings all over the house. And the paintings are so good that our maid was once trying to scrub the cobweb off a painting for an hour. And she thought the cobweb was real. The guy says, impossible, I don't believe it. He says, why? I, it's the best paintings. I spent millions of dollars. He says, the paintings maybe, but you don't have such a maid. <laughs> <laughs> if reality is what we see, then there's no difference between real reality and virtual reality. What makes one more real or less real? What's the answer? What makes something only virtual and something else real to us? The other senses. Sight is one of five senses. So in addition to seeing, there's feeling, there's touching, there's tasting. Can you taste virtual reality? Can you eat a virtual hot dog? Of course, not yet. <laughs> Never. <laughs> It doesn't have any depth. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. You can't feel it. You see it. And what makes that sight even less real? Well, let me put it to you differently. What is more real? This painting that's on the wall or the same exact image that would be projected on the wall? Which would be more real between the two? The picture. Why? Because you could touch it. Okay. See? Touch the other canvas. The canvas, this is, I have an image which is being sent onto a canvas right now. I'm projecting it onto a canvas. You can touch the canvas. What's the difference? Because the moment you turn the light off, it's gone. 
So how real is it? It's not real. It's, it's entirely dependent. You're not really there. Is a plane really in the sky? Yeah, yes, I know. It's, 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 it's there because it's making an effort to constantly be there. It's not really there. It's not in its natural habitat. What happens if the engines get lost? Big trouble, right? It's not natural for thousands of tons of metal to be miles up in the sky. It's not natural. Now, mind you, <laughs> are you flying today? I'm sorry, I apologize. Just tell yourself it's not real. It's all... Now, uh, contrastingly, when you spend a spatial, a spatial up into, into space, it doesn't have to constantly be putting itself into the space because that is natural. Things float in space. Once you break the atmosphere and the pull of gravity or whatever, we can argue about that, but once you break a certain point, it's natural. Things can be there. The problem is getting back into the atmosphere, re-entering. So, what seems to be real is real, but it's a temporary reality. And if something doesn't have a lasting reality, thus it's not real. Don't you hear the famous question? You know, teenagers always come, and I'm sure your teenagers have come and asked you the question, or you wish they would ask you the question, to say like, Mom, am I in love, or is it just an infatuation? Like, how do I know it's real? Maybe it's real. How do you feel right now? Oh, I love the guy. Okay, so then you love him. What's the problem? No, but maybe it's infatuation. What does that mean? Do you love him right now? Yeah, so then you love him. What's the, what's the issue? The issue is, can I build my life on this? Love is not something you feel for five minutes. Love is something that has the power to survive all kinds of turmoil, right? The difficulties of life, and to still remain attached. That's a whole different story. Reality, or true reality, is something that has staying power, something that lasts. So, for example, in, in the Torah uh, syntax, there's a famous Mishnah in Tractate Parah that talks about the waters that are needed to mix with the red heifer in order to purify you. And it has to be Mayim Chaim, it has to be live water. It has to be true water. So, the Mishnah asks a very obvious question. How do you define true water? That's not virtual water. What makes water true? Is it, is it wet? It's wet, so it's true. What's the difference? If water is wet, it's water. So the answer is it has to come from a true source. And a true source means a source of water that doesn't dry up periodically. And the Mishnah defines that any source of water that dries up every seven years, I'm sure some of you have seen riverbeds, or little in Coleman Israel wadis, flash floods, you could have a river, you could have a river that's gone. It's just the way, the nature of the beast. So any river that periodically dries up, sometimes is, sometimes isn't, that's not called real. The Mishnah uses the term of seven years, because the truth is nothing in our world is real. Nobody knows what will be around years from now. I pointed out at a recent lecture, the Dead Sea is half the size it was 50 years ago. Is that real? Is it disappearing? Maybe. <laughs> there are serious concerns about the Dead Sea today. Where, where will it go in the future? I mean, the Jordan River, it would seem from the Chumash, was once a mighty river. It's hardly a stream today. If anybody's gone to Israel, they, they offer you whitewater rafting in the Jordan River. <laughs> it's like whitewater rafting in your bathtub. I mean, it's, 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 it's a joke. There's no... <laughs> sorry to disappoint you. There's no, <laughs> there's no danger in whitewater rafting. You know, we took our missions. We had elderly people going into whitewater rafting. Don't do that in Colorado. It's a... <laughs> What was, what was the Jordan River uh, 3,000 years ago? My, my guess is that it was a very powerful river at one time. But it isn't today. That's the way things are. Seas, seas dry up, lakes dry up. Sometimes new seas are formed, are created. 
So obviously, if the Mishnah is going to go to this, this point of whatever is real is what's eternal, nothing is eternal in this world. So the Mishnah finds a, a term like seven years. Okay, that's called an eternity. That's a cycle of life, right? Seven years of Shemitah. Seven, every seven years we begin a new cycle. And in general, the number six and, and one, seven, has the cycle of complete completion, like a week of, uh, that we know as a week. You know, a cycle of a week. You have to have a day of rest. You have to have six days of work. Shabbos, you have to have a week of Shiva. You have to have a week of celebration after a wedding. A week is a cycle. So it has to be something that lasts through an entire cycle. Otherwise, it's not real. So reality is then, the truth is then, determined by its lasting power. How long does it exist for? What makes virtual reality unreal? That its existence is totally dependent at all times. So it's not real. The painting had an artist that put color on a canvas many years ago. And the artist either is alive or is not alive, or has seen the painting or doesn't see the painting. It makes no difference. Once the brush was applied to canvas and the color was spread out in a certain way, it remains that way. Forever. Nothing lasts forever. Paintings disintegrate. I mean, how, how long could a painting last for? A thousand years? How old is the oldest painting around today? Two thousand years old? Cave paintings. They're, not, they're certainly not the colors they were originally. But how long can a painting on a canvas last? It's going to crumble eventually. Today, this, uh, museums, they have all kinds of technologies to try to make something last longer. But the reality is that things can only last for so long. Everything in our world is prone to disintegration. I should point out that when things disintegrate, they don't really ever disappear. Because we know today that everything has energy in it. And energy changes forms. So the energy never disappears, but the form is constantly changing. The nuclei remains. The practical expression of the nuclei or, the, or of that nuclear reality is able to be transformed into something else. And this is the whole science of ecology. Right? How things decay, goes into the earth, and then fertilizes new life. And it's a constant give and take and a constant process. So nothing really is naturally eternal. So what makes some things more real than other? If these paintings that are on the wall are not going to last forever, let's say they have a shelf life of a thousand years or three thousand years, but at some point they will disintegrate, why is that any more real than the reality of virtual, virtual reality, which is a painting that's projected onto the wall. Because we sense that the virtual reality of the painting is constantly being enabled by a projector. The moment the origin or the source of its existence is cut off, it ceases to exist. Whereas here, the origin or the beginning of this was somebody who painted the painting, the person is long gone, and now it can last in a, kind of an inertia for thousands of years, although eventually it will disintegrate. So therefore we call it more of a real reality. More of a, a reality, but not an eternal reality. Nothing in our world is eternal. By definition, everything in our world has to decay and has to disintegrate. Imagine that everything in our world is really virtual. Because it's entirely dependent on God for it to exist. And if God didn't will it into existence for one moment, it would simply cease to exist, just like an imagination. Your imagination is the original virtual reality. You can close your eyes and imagine that you're somewhere. And by the way, that imagination can have some very powerful impact. So much so, that we have a halacha, the makan shemachshav teshaladav, where your mind is, shamhuninsa. It's as if, in a, in, a, in a mystical way, you can actually be somewhere without being there at all. And there is something called mental telepathy. It's not a holy thing necessarily. It's a real thing. 
It's possible to think about somebody on the other end of the world and to communicate. We know this to be a reality today. There are people who get all spooky and they call it ESP and they think it's demons and devils. It's really not. There's a sikha from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe where he examines a story about a Balshemta and one of his disciples. And the Balshemta's disciple, who was a great tzaddik himself, writes a letter thanking the Balshemta for thinking about him during Rosh Hashanah. And the Friedrich Rebbe says this is not miraculous. That if somebody is very, very bound to somebody else, there's a very deep connection, then they can feel they're being thought about. We have that example sometimes with identical twins or parents and children. I mean, some of you may have experienced things. You get a tremor or you're not comfortable or you just know something's wrong and later you find out that at the exact time something was wrong. Now obviously tzaddikim are able to travel the freeways. They have a, much, a totally different way of uh, this, this reality. But even for us who are not tzaddikim and are able to live in the spiritual realm, there is a metaphysical reality. It does exist. It exists on a different plane. We're not sure exactly how to describe it. And it doesn't make you spooked out. It doesn't make you a ghost. No, I'm, what I mean to say is it doesn't make you anything. You're not a paranormal human being. It makes you it makes you a normal neurotic Jewish mother. That's all it makes you. <laughs> there is such a reality. There, there's no question that there, such a reality exists. That's not called holy. That's called metaphysical. Metaphysical reality. It's it's a reality. And there's some people that have a gift of being able to harness metaphysical reality. There's an Israeli. Uh, call him a shaman or a spookster but uh, his name is Uri Gelman I don't know if he's still around but actually he can move things he's able to harness metaphysical energy doesn't make him any holier or closer to God it just means he was given a gift there's some people that have that gift I once had a guy in my office who claimed to have a gift like that and he demonstrated it and you know I have to say it was pretty impressive he had a gift somebody else other people could take a pencil or take a, a piece of charcoal and create a beautiful picture and it takes them a few hours is that less magical? how come everybody everybody can do that? Other people take a block of stone and a chisel and start banging away. You come back an hour later and there's a human being there. How do they do that? Why can't everybody do that? It's a gift. Different people have different gifts. Some people just know the right thing to say all the time. How do they know that? Who told them? <laughs> Some people know all of the wrong things to say. <laughs> you, all, you all know people like that, right? Like, how did you know exactly what you shouldn't say? <laughs> How do you have a perfect record? You're always with the shoehorn. You're like, always like, bang on. It's a gift. <laughs> the, the kind of gift you'd rather not have. Maybe it's a curse. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Very good. <laughs> you know what you remind me of a joke? There's a guy standing up at his wedding. He's toasting his bride. He turns around to his mother and he says, What should I say? You've given me a gift. And he's looking for the right words. And the mother goes that you cannot return. <laughs> so, what I'm trying to get at is that there are various ways we can describe reality. And there are various types of truths. But we have to understand that from a Jewish perspective, we believe that everything hinges upon godliness. And that God allows everything to exist. And that just as a thought is as real as the originator of the thought, and if you close your eyes and you make believe you're seeing something, you're actually seeing it. 
until you decide not to think about it anymore. Do you have to do an act of destruction once you, you thought about something or you put yourself into a certain framework? Do you have to then now destroy it? Break your thoughts apart? Burn it? <laughs> what are you talking about? You just stop thinking about it. The moment you stop thinking, it ceases to exist. And this is what Hasidus says is the meaning of La'ilam Hashem Devar Chanitza Bashamayim. Al-Tarebbe articulates this in, in uh, Tanya in a segment called Shara Yichud Hamuna, which is the, the gates or portals of oneness and faith. And he explains in, in, in incre- 12 incredible chapters this idea in great detail how Hashem is constantly recreating everything. And of course everything bases itself on the scripture. La'ilam Hashem, forever you God, Devarcha, your words, the original words, he should be light, let there be a firmament, let there be a heavens, let there be earth. Those words are Bashamayim. They're in the heavens. You know why there's a firmament? Because God's saying, let there be a firmament. It's an ongoing process. Creation is not something that God once did. Creation, Hashem is the creator. Present tense, not past tense. We don't believe God created heaven and earth. We believe God is involved in heaven and earth now. And that's Hashem Echad. That's the meaning of God is one. Not that everything came from God, and now it has no connection anymore but that everything is coming from God and is constantly connected to Hashem. This concept, this idea, helps us understand, or at least helps us believe in the idea of God's oneness. They tell a story of a chassid who once was sparring with a non-chassid, who was very scholarly in areas of Talmud and Halacha, but totally ignorant when it came to the mystical philosophies of Judaism. And the guy says, who needs it? Who needs it? I know the entire Talmud... I've memorized entire tracts of the Shulchan Aruch. Who needs this Hasidic business? So the Chassid turns around to him and says, Tell me, if God got tired of you in the world, what would he do with it? He says, God is all powerful. He could do whatever he wants. So what would he do? He says, he, he could burn the world. So he said, really? And what would he do with the ashes? He'll spread them to the four corners of space. So the Chassid responds, In that case, you and your God can get burned. In other words, that's for God to believe in? That's ridiculous. That, that, that's simplistic faith like in second grade. That's why you need Chassidus. Chassidus helps us believe in a sophisticated way. Or to know Hashem in a sophisticated way. Obviously, there's a certain point we cannot know. But up until that point, you have to know. The Torah says, Das Hashem Know Hashem your God. How do you know Hashem your God? You should know today, Moshe Rabbeinu says. Take to heart an understanding way. An emotional understanding. An understanding that impacts you personally. Ki Hashem Huelikim. That Hashem is the Lord. What does that mean Hashem is the Lord? This is the same concept of Hashem Echad. Havaya, or God that is transcendent, is Elikim, is the God, the Lord of the world, that enables the world to exist. You have to know that. You have to understand it. And what we're talking about is barely the tip of the iceberg. This is just a basic understanding to it. The Rebbe says, this is what the Mishnah is telling us in a nuance. Kol ma shebara HaKadosh Baruch Everything that Hashem created, meaning all of reality, that's a, it's reality, it's real. I touch it, I taste it, I feel it, I see it. It's real. Leibroi. It really is not real. It's not created. You know why it's not created? Because Hashem is allowing it to exist every moment. So in that case, you ask a question, if it's not real, what's wrong with eating pork? A piece of non, non-entity or non-reality is eating non-reality. What's the difference? Then nothing means anything. What's the difference if I light Shabbos candles or I don't light Shabbos candles? I'm not real and the candles are not real. And the world is not real. What's the difference if I live or die? What's the difference if I do mitzvahs or don't do mitzvahs? So the truth is, Mishnah says, Loi brai ella. 
There's a caveat. It's not created except for it really is created. Hashem really does regard it as reality. Why? If it's seemingly not reality, why is it reality? The answer is, for Hashem's glory. In other words, the only reason the world has a right to exist, or the only reason that things have a right to be called true reality, is because Hashem calls it true reality. And why does Hashem call it true reality? For His glory. Which means that I have to train myself to think that although I'm so caught up in a world of reality, and the world that presents all these problems, so how could I and how can it? I have to train myself to think that all the world with all its reality is only there for a purpose. If I use the world for its right things, so then reality is true. I, I give it meaning. That's why Hashem created it. If I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then the whole thing doesn't have to exist altogether. We know people are always bothered by this question, why do we exist? From the very beginning of time, people are always asking these, these issues like, you know, well, what's the purpose of life? Who says there has to be a purpose to life? <laughs> what's the purpose? Live, enjoy. The Romans had a great idea. Eat, drink, party, be merry. Tomorrow you may die. How come that doesn't work for most people? Like, oh, come on. Eat, drink, be merry. What kind of morality is that? So it's not moral. So who needs morality? It's fun. It's merry. So be merry. Speak to the average teenager, they won't know what you're talking about. They're busy being merry. By the time you're 35 or 40 or whatever, whenever it takes us to, to get the wake-up call, some people will get it at 22. So it's like, okay, so what's the purpose? What's the point? There was a very famous ballet star, a young man who at the, I think the age of 24 was in the front pages of all the papers, and he was like a, just a, an incredible, incredibly talented and, and gifted performer. And he reached the top. At Tzutzik, 24 years old, he was on the top, top, top. And, and, and tragically, he committed suicide. And he left the suicide note behind. This is what happened in the 80s in New York City. His suicide note behind is, I spent my whole life getting to the top. I got to the top, and there was nothing there. So why bother living? You have stories like this. People look at, so I work, work. What's the purpose? What's the point? Who says there has to be a point? Unfortunately, suicide is a reality that we live with in our society. Why would anybody do something so stupid? I'm not talking about people who commit suicide because they're in terrible pain and they can't take the pain. Which is problematic also. It's also not right. I'm talking about people who, who do crazy things like that because they get depressed or they get upset. Or, or life has no meaning. I mean, life has no meaning. Who says it has to have meaning? I'm sorry. Talk about gifts of having all the wrong things to say. <laughs> I apologize. So what, we have to ask ourselves a question. You're going to a funeral like that today, ask yourself a question, why? Why? And the answer is that in us there's a little microchip that still remembers subconsciously that there is a God and that's aware of the fact that God is creating us. And you have to redeem yourself. You have to feel that meaning for life. And if you're not going to feel meaning for life, you will never be happy. And you will forever be frustrated. Because you can't go against your brain without getting scratched. You can't be happy, you can't be content and satisfied, unless you are functioning in the manner or method that you were intended for. If you use something that it wasn't designed for, eventually it's going to cave in. You can use, you know, band-aids for a certain amount of time. It can't last forever. 
If you have people who are trained for the wrong job, doing the wrong job, eventually it's, it's got to give. You can get by sometimes. You can, you can put a peg into a square hole. You can make it stay together. But eventually the machine's going to break down. Because that's not what it was created for. Everything has its purpose. We were created for a purpose. We exist in a world whose existence is based on purpose. So if we have no purpose, or if we don't feel any purpose, and we don't have a reason to justify our existence, then we don't, we don't exist anymore. Then we have trouble going on existing. This is not something that is only in the realm of faith. This is something as real as the funeral you're going to today. This is symptomatic of this truth, is what's going on in the world. History has repeated itself again and again and again and again. People thinking life is about this, and then a young generation coming along and says, that's life. That's Meshuggah, that's not life. Right? The crazy 60s. What happened? A whole generation revolted against the, the, the world of, it, of material excesses. Now, where are all those uh, revolutionaries today? Today's yuppies. And guess what? The kids are revolting the same way again. So then it was with uh, all kind of psychedelic experiences and then and, and, and one kind of drugs and today it's something else. Today it's heavy metal or reggae, I don't know. Whatever, whatever it is, that, that the flavor of the day. The flavor of the day is being only harnessed by the same issue. And the same issue is a quest for definition, a quest for reason. Why do I exist? We cannot exist without a reason. That's who we are. Hashem created us for a reason. He created our existence for a purpose. And if we can't articulate it and don't know why it exists, we will not be satisfied. We will not be able to go on existing. So, Kol everything Hashem created, library. It's really not created. Meaning, it's not able to dignify its existence except for one reason. So, if a person will live life in a focused way, or the reason you understand the reason for existence is because Hashem created us for a purpose, then everything fits into place. Then all of a sudden, the world and its existence starts to be justified. It makes sense to us. How do we know this? Because Yeshayahu says, Kol HaNikra, Dishmi, everything that is called upon by my name, Ulechvedi, and anything that's called for my praise. Those things, Those things are created. In, in the um, in the terminology of Kabbalah, there are four worlds. And these four worlds are actually a blueprint for every type of reality. And they are called Atsilus, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. Loosely translated, Atsilus is a world of emanation. Bria is a world of creation. Yitzira is a world of formation. And Asiya is the world of action. Or the world of actuality. Let me try to explain this in uh, using a simple metaphor because we know we are created in the image of Hashem. So if we look at our own selves, we can have a better understanding of mystical secrets of the world. Let's trace any particular actuality backwards. You did something. Whatever it was. What preceded that deed? A thought about the deed. Thought can be experienced on two levels. There's a way we think for ourselves, which is a theoretical thought, theoretical train of thought. And then there's the way we think for others, which is a pragmatic thought. In the, in the uh, colloquial, Kabbalistic syntax, that's divided as thought and speech. 
So we have something called Machshava, Dibur Maisa. Thought, speech, deed. To translate speech as actual articulation is a mistake. That's not the meaning of speech. In fact, the Gemara says quite the contrary. Movement of lips, the formation of the tongue, is an action. And it's called so. In Halacha, that becomes an action. So what does it mean when we say in the teachings of Kabbalah that first you need thought, then you need speech, then you need action. Do you have to talk about something before you do it? Very often people do talk about things before they do it. Why do people talk about it? Why would you discuss something with somebody else before you did it? Have you ever noticed that when you discuss it with somebody, all of a sudden you have a different picture or you decide not to do it? Or you, or you do it in a different way? I once had to speak somewhere and I thought about what I was going to say carefully. You know, I don't really use notes, but I, I, thought, I think about things. I thought about it very carefully. And I was sitting next to a friend and I said, he says, what are you going to be speaking about today? And I shared the kernel, the essence of something I said. And he said, you sure you want to say it that way? Some people would find it offensive. I thought, I said, he's right. He's right. So, Baruch Hashem, I thank my lucky stars I sat next to him. And when I got up, I didn't say it that way. Baruch Hashem, I came across, well, what changed? I'm not stupid. Do lots of speaking. Why did it make a difference when I articulated it or when I spoke to somebody else? Because it becomes a reality outside of me. There's a reality. We, we all live in our own cocoon. We all live in our own dreams. To some degree, we're all dreamers. No, none of us are realistic fully. That's human nature. Human nature is we see ourselves in an unrealistic way. We're always taller, smarter, prettier, more capable than we really are. All the fancy things. Whatever you want it to be. Right? Now the funny thing is people try on clothing. It doesn't look good in them. They stand this way. Okay, it was that bad. So I'll buy the dress. I can buy the suit. So you're going to spend your whole time walking like this? <laughs> like, like what does it help if you struck a pose where it didn't look so bad? Because <laughs> in our own mind, it has to look good to us. By the way, there's value to it. If you feel you look good, even if it looks like the biggest yukul, you, know, you feel you look good. It's, you feel good about yourself. It's a reality. Clothes are important not only for other people. If you buy wearing clothes that everybody says you look great in, and you feel like a fool in them, then you don't feel good. You always like to have somebody else's opinion because we know that we're not sure. What's the problem? You look in a mirror, you have two eyes. <laughs> it's you you have to please. Yeah, but. So there's this kind of tension. We want somebody else to approve of it, but we want to be able to com- be comfortable ourselves. We all live in a dream world. We're all dreamers. Some of us more, some of us less. And at the same time, when we take something outside the box, or when we have the ability to take it out of our little world and put it into another world or put it into somebody else's eyes then there's an objective or more true or more realistic kind of perspective in order to do something when you do something action is always outside of you you can't can't act out in your head that's not called acting so how do you act out? you do and invariably actions affect other people if you want to know how your actions are going to affect other people why don't you first have a sounding board why don't you first try it out on a few people or on somebody else or, or even in your own mind to articulate it because a thought that makes perfect sense to you and very moving to you when you try to put it into words and you realize you can't make a coherent sentence it's not going to be a good idea you're not going to be able to communicate this or at least you'll know how to begin by saying I don't know how to say this 
or I have no words. I'm going to do my best. I know it's not going to come out right. At least now, when somebody hears you sound like a little mashuga, they know you said to begin with that you're trying to communicate something very deep that you can't. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a headspace we have to occupy. The headspace of what will somebody else think or how will somebody else listen to it. Both are necessary. You have to think on your own first. Otherwise, you're a parrot. But after you think on your own, you also need to try to step outside of yourself and think in somebody else's terms. So, the difference between the two methods of thinking is, one, I'm, I'm thinking for myself, and I'm not regarding those who are outside of me. The other is, I'm very much giving credence to something which is outside of me. I give it importance, I give it prominence. It becomes meaningful to me. Like we say literally, a normal person doesn't talk to themselves. The gift of speech is for others. Speaking can be writing also. The point is, when you have to express it, you're expressing it to somebody. Otherwise, there's no why, why bother thinking outside of yourself if you're never going to communicate it anyway. There's no value to that. So we have action, which is preceded first by a, 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 a lesser level. Kind of, it's just, action is a, it steps totally out of yourself. But before you step totally out of yourself, you step a little bit out of yourself. And this is called speech. And then we actively start to think about something which precedes thinking outside of yourself. You first have to think inside yourself. And what precedes that? What precedes? An action is preceded by a speech which is preceded by a thought. And what came before that? But what happened originally? Before I did anything? If I could stop for a second, let me just complete this thought. A stimulus. Something stimulated you. Right? It could be an idea that came to mind. It could be a feeling that wells up. There's something that stimulates. Where does that come from? We don't know. It just, just comes from somewhere. You have this uh, infinite idea well. Things just come. You have a, a sudden desire for something. Why? I, I don't know. Can anybody explain why suddenly they'd like to have ice cream? I'm sure you've all experienced craving in your life. Okay. What made you crave all of a sudden? Did you even interpret your craving? Do you even know what's missing in the beginning? Let's imagine that you take something and divide it in slow motion. You know, like when they edit a movie, they take it, they watch it by milliseconds, and they know exactly where to cut it off. Imagine if we're going to take your, your, something that happened in a moment, right? Like your hand moved. Before your hand moved, you, you thought for a split second, you thought for yourself, you thought for others, there was a stimuli. Let's do that in slow motion. Where did the stimuli come from? Where did the original impetus come from? It just came. It just came really out of nowhere. It's almost like an inner expression, an expression of self. So now, that inner expression of self is beyond definition. Do you think that people who speak a different language have a different kind of stimuli? When somebody wants a sensation, whether it's hot or cold or happiness, before they know what to call it, they have a sensation. Do you think babies have different cravings than adults? I don't know. I mean, yes or no. It's different and it's all the same. They have the basic craving. A baby craves to be held. A baby craves to be cuddled. He craves to feel love. These elemental things. The baby can't articulate it. Any cravings? Oh, for sure. No question. No question. I'm just talking about basic human needs. Basic instinct. A child has the same human instincts as an adult has. The human being who is more mature has a better understanding of his or her instincts. Oh, you know what's bothering you. And you know how to articulate it. 
and you know how to get it. The baby is not capable of thinking it. He can't think for himself. He certainly can't think how others are going to react. And he absolutely has no idea of how to act out. He's incapable. The baby is inca- he can't move. He's totally immobile. So what does the baby do at 4 o'clock in the morning when it is uncomfortable? It cries. The only thing it knows how to do is vent its frustration. Does the baby ever think, hmm, 4 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> now, I'm, not, I'm not that uncomfortable. I think I'll... I let, I let my parents sleep for an hour and I'll wake them up at five. It's a little more respectable time. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Eh? Baby doesn't think about things. That whole process is impossible. Now, when your child is five, they think twice, right? Because last time you yelled at them, so let me sleep already. So now they think oh, it's, a, it's a bad dream. Is it bad enough to risk getting yelled at? <laughs> my mom explained to me last night she didn't want to see me in her bed again. Okay, you think a little more. And the child is 12 years old, it's like a little bit ridiculous. Imagine you have a child that's 30 years old that still comes knocking on your door every night at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's like totally unacceptable. <laughs> you have bad dreams and I'm like, get yourself a teddy bear. Like that, that's, there comes a certain point when that just doesn't fit, doesn't jive. Nothing really changed. We learn how to control our instincts. We learn how to think. We learn how to think for others. We learn how to act. Some people lose their ability. Some people sometimes get overwhelmed become addicted to something and they act like children they act irrationally or oh, that's what we call a mishigas a mishigas is a derivative of mishuga which means crazy and the Torah expression for addiction is mishuga davar. person is normal except for one thing when it comes here they become insane they become crazy so why did you do that? I don't know that was the stupidest thing you could have done you ruined your career you ruined your family you, ruined, you lost everything and you knew you were going to lose it. Why did you do it? I, I can't explain it. I had this irresistible craving. You were basically crazy. Now, a lot of craziness can be controlled. And if you know you're being crazy about something, so then you say, okay, I, this is not acceptable. This kind of behavior has to be curbed, and I have to work on becoming normal in this area of my life too. And that's so that Ambam's advice, when somebody is very, very extreme or prone to extremities, which is another term for craziness, Crazy is just extreme, that's all. We all do the things crazy people do. We just do them in a modified way. A crazy person has no concern for what others think. They live in their own world. And who they step on or happen to, to, to step over makes no difference to them. So you have to go from one extreme, you have to force yourself to go to another extreme. And, which is also crazy. But that kind of craziness is eventually going to have the pendulum to swing into what Torah calls derech, I'm sorry, the middle way or the normative manner. Normal is the middle way. That's called normal. And extremes are defined by Torah as crazy. And there are various ways of expressing or describing a craziness. The way off topic. But let's try to bring this all back. What I'm bringing it all back to is that we have a stimuli, we have a thought process, an articulative process, and finally an active process. This, everything I just told you, is a metaphor for the Kabbalistic idea of four worlds. There's a world of Atsilut, which I translated as a world of emanation. What does emanation mean? An emanation is the light that you find on your book right now. Where does that light emanate from? It emanates from a light bulb or a source of light. Should that source of light cease to exist, what would happen to the light that's spilling onto your page now? It too would cease to exist. So is the source of light and its effulgence or emanation one and the same? No. This is, a, this is light and that's a source of light. 
that it had heat or not. And this doesn't have heat. So it doesn't have the same properties. Light is not the same as its source. So if light is not the same as its source, how come when the source ceases to exist, the light ceases or the emanation ceases? Because they're connected. So they're very close. The light is unable to see itself as an independent entity. The light knows it's a totally dependent entity. This is the meaning of the world of Atsilus. In the world of Atsilus, the angelic creatures, or whatever that means, because I have no idea what Atsilus means, the existence in Atsilus knows that it's totally dependent on God and therefore feels no self-consciousness. It doesn't have any self-existence. Its existence is on a way outside of God. It's not God anymore. Just like the light is not the source of light. But it's totally dependent on the source. So we can't really call it a created world. It's not created. Created means outside of God. It's like a stimuli. A stimuli has no type. It's, 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 it's stimuli come and go. It, it's, it's no definition. There are no words for a stimuli. You eventually articulate a stimuli or understand your stimuli. But the original stimulus that comes from, from somewhere deep within the soul is something that has no real definition. Yes? I was going to say, so basically it's saying that they have no free will. So of course they have no free will. That's for sure. It goes without saying they have no free will. Not only that, but even the later worlds have no free will. Free will is only in the world of action. However, as the creation evolves and I use that word loosely, not Chas Hashem evolves by itself, but as Hashem allows or carefully guides the evolution of these worlds, we go from a world that is emanated to a world that is created. Just like you go from a stimuli, now you're actively thinking about it. It has definition. What language do you think in? English, Hebrew, Yiddish, Russian? Whatever language you think in. So it has to have definition now. And I know what I want. And I understand how I want it. But it's still very close to me. It's very private. Not only you don't know what I'm thinking about, but the terminology that I'm thinking with is not even in your world. You wouldn't relate to it even. You couldn't even understand that if I had a screen on my forehead, you wouldn't be able to decipher what was going on there. From there we go to the next world. This, by the way, is called Bria. Bria means created. It's an entity or existence outside of us. Yes? I was just going to say, does evil exist only in this world or in other worlds as well? Okay, very good question. The root of evil exists goes all the way back. But evil, actual evil, only exists in this world. That's, that's exactly why as I'm explaining, because all these worlds are a step away, a step further away from the inner essence of God, as it were. It's a metaphor. Imagine here the epicenter is godliness, the epicenter is Atsilus, and as we move out the outer orbits, each orbit is a world where suddenly it feels more of self. We go to the next world just like you have a stimuli, which is you. It's not you. You are not your stimuli, but your stimuli comes from you, just like the effulgence comes from a source of light. The next level is to think, to think for yourself. That is followed by thinking in somebody else's terms. That's called Yitzir in Hebrew, formation. Not only it exists, it has a definitive form. But it's not yet separate. It's like the arrow has not been shot. The bullet is still in the gun. It's loaded, it's ready, it's clicked. The rocket ship hasn't left the launching pad yet. So it's still connected. I didn't articulate it even yet. I'm just thinking in your world. And then finally there's the big jump. And that's the jump of the way it's in my world. I'm thinking, I'm feeling to what I do. Once you do something, the arrows are out. You can't pull them back. You can't say something to somebody very offensive. Ah, I didn't really mean that. You don't care, right? What do you mean? Of course they care. You can't take words back. You could sometimes say something that will hurt somebody so much you can never repair a relationship again. There are hurtful things to say. Oh, come on, it was a joke, you know, can't you take a joke? 
No, not everybody can take a joke, and not everything is a joke. There are certain things, and once you do it, for sure, it's done. The deed is done. Somebody just finished working for two years on a painting, and you came along and you just put a razor right to the middle. Say, ha, 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 it's just a joke. I just put a razor to it. It's okay. It's not okay. There's no way to justify that. You just ruined something. Action means it's totally outside of us. It leaves. We are no longer master of our actions. Once we do something, our actions can sometimes take a little life of their own. This is the last world. This is the world of Asiya, the world of action. That's the world we live in. So Hashem is telling us that all creation, from the innermost creation, the creation that's most intimate with God, to the creation that feels and thinks that it's totally outside of God. Although really it isn't, because the Talmud says the difference between man and God is that human being throws an arrow, can't pull it back. But to God, the arrow is always tethered. Throw the arrow, you don't want it to tip, rein him in. There's nothing that's ever outside of God's control. But it seems to us, in our mind, it seems that it's outside of godliness. And this is where you have evil come in. And this is where things that could exist that are diametric opposite of God could exist, even though it's being powered by God. And the, the Pusik is telling us that all of this, from the beginning until the most external reality of creation, is all created and exists for one reason. For the sake of God. So the upshot of this entire mystical philosophy is that everything we do has to be permeated with a sense of purpose. There is nothing in the world that is outside of God meaning that is devoid of meaning or devoid of purpose. Everything has a reason. Some things it's where, where things we're supposed to get involved in. Something, the reason it's there is for us to avoid. So as far as we're concerned, God created the pig, so we shouldn't eat him. That's his job. His job is to tempt us and our job is to reject him. It's also a job. It's also a challenge. Everything has its purpose, its definition. How do you define everything? You define everything in a Torah way. Everything is as valuable or as meaningful as Torah says it is. And everything is meaningful. And the Pasuk says, Hashem God rules forever. The idea of God's kingship is that God is always master. There is never a time when God's kingship ends, God's control ends, and now somebody else takes over. This idea was very uh, vividly displayed to me. I was once on a television show with a Christian pastor. And we talked about what, what, will you, what do you say to somebody when they're dying? Somebody's very sick. And he said, doesn't talk about death because it's never inevitable. The devil is death and God is life. Maybe God will win this one. Maybe the devil will win. We don't know. But I will never give in to the devil until it's too late. Once the devil won, the devil won this round. But it's never over. And I realized Mama said he has like this clear break. There's, there's, you know, sometimes, sometimes you live in a world where I'm so indoctrinated with this idea of Hashem Echad, God is one and everything is godliness, that it, it almost like it shook me. I said, oh my God, this is, this is a clergyman. He's saying clear. God is, his power, God ends over here. His power doesn't extend any further. Whereas for a Jew, everything is in Hashem's hands. I also never despair. Not because the devil's going to win. Because it's in Hashem's hands. Because the Gemara says, even if there's a sharp sword resting on your neck, you don't despair. Why? Because it's in Hashem's hands. Our job is not to despair. Our job is to have faith. Now, the truth is, logically, he's right. How could God be evil? And as I said at the outset, it's not a logical thing. This is the basic principle of Jewish belief. We believe that Hashem is a chad. 
And as long as we believe that Hashem is a chad, and as long as we go through life understanding and realizing that everything in the world and everything that happens has reason and has purpose, some things we'll know, some things we'll never know. Some things we can understand, some things we'll only understand in decades. But that everything has meaning and purpose, and that every experience in your life and everything you come in contact with is a challenge to you. How will you utilize this in the service of Hashem? Then if you understand that, and if you live your life that way, then you have achieved the crowning glory of Perky Avos. This is the last Mishnah. This is what Judaism is all about. And this is what the whole Mishnayas of Perky Avos is all about. About giving everything an added level of meaning. And understanding that there is no iota or figment of the world in which we live that is devoid of godliness or that is outside of the glory and the praise of Hashem. Of course, this will all be vividly seen when the siyum is not made on the Mishnayis, when God brings the clothes, the curtain on Angolos, and Mashiach will come, so then we'll see truly Hashem Yimlech Le'elam Vod. Let us hope and pray that we see that very speedily in our days. Amen.